Ladies and gentlemen, thank you very much for joining us tonight. Welcome to the New Culture Forum Smith Lecture for 2021. Um, we had our first one in 2017. It was Douglas Murray uh, talking about the strange death of Europe. Uh, that was followed by Nigel Farage talking about the threat to free speech from social media. And then David Starkey, who was talking about the constitutional crisis brought on by Brexit. I'm delighted that tonight we have the archaeologist, historian and broadcaster, Neil Oliver. I'll come to him in a, in a while. Uh, just a few things. Um, we started the New Culture Forum in 2006 because basically we felt that cultural issues were the main ones of our time. I think we've been more than proved right by that. Indeed, uh, it's meant that we are now the foremost think tank working in this area. Um, I don't know how many of you watch our YouTube channel, uh, but we started this two years ago um, out of very small beginnings. We now have something like 15 and a half million views under our belt and 131,000 subscribers. Um, I do believe it's really contributed to the political debate, particularly around uh, these issues. Uh, we recently started a membership scheme, and you will see a little kind of reminder on your seat. So if you haven't joined up again, please do have a look and see the great benefits which uh, accrue to becoming a member, whether you are, um, if you like, a, a basic member, going right up to what we call a gold member. Um, but that will allow all sorts of uh, advantages such as free entry to events like this and indeed free publications. Um, as I said, I'm delighted uh, that we have Neil Oliver with us tonight. He's obviously very well known, I'm sure to you, um, for his broadcast series such as uh, Coast, uh, The Vikings, uh, History of Ancient Britain. He's written numerous books, and when it comes to cancel culture and wokery, uh, he's had more than a brush with that when he was president of the Scottish National Trust uh, for three years until 2020. Uh, the order of things tonight will be that he will speak, and then there will be a period of about half an hour for questions from the audience. I'm sure there will be many. Um, but without further ado, the attack on our history and culture, Neil Oliver. Thank you. Well, hello and welcome. That's that's a very um, it's a very humbling welcome to receive. <clears throat> Listening to Peter name check the previous uh, uh, occupants of this space that I'm in now, uh, Douglas Murray, Nigel Farage, um, David Starkey, uh, only intensifies the feeling that I've had for the last few years uh, of how on earth how on earth uh, how do I keep finding myself in these situations, but. <laughs> why, why, why me, oh God? <laughs> um, but 
without without further ado, I'll I'll start. I've uh, over the years, you know, of course, you can, as you can imagine, I've, I, I have been called upon to speak in, in various circumstances, and I used to I used to wing it, um, but the time, times are changing increasingly, and th things end up online and being filmed and. And the, 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 it, I feel increasingly that I need to be a bit more precise. So I've, got, I've now got into the habit of write, writing things down, which I never used to do. Um, but if, if you'll bear with me, if you'll bear with me, I'll, I'll, I'll work from notes. But I, I want to start. I mean, I'm here to talk about the attack, the attack on our history. And I, I, I'm not an academic, which I will, I will repeat over and over again. Um, I just love history, and I, I came to love history mostly because of stories. And so I will start with. A story which I think it takes a few minutes to tell it, but I think it, it illustrates something about our history, I think. And, it, and it's always said, it's, it's amongst a raft of, of stories that I think they, they say something to me about the power of history. Uh, in January 1852, the iron hulled, ocean going paddle steamer HMS Birkenhead left Portsmouth with soldiers bound for South Africa. She journeyed first to Cove of Cork in Southern Ireland, where she collected soldiers and horses. As far as fighting men went, these were as green as could be. They'd signed up just weeks before, in the main, to escape the horror of Angorta Moor, uh, the Great Hunger, which has gone down in the history books as the Irish Potato Famine, um, that had nothing in the way of training. They had uniforms. Uh, they may have been attracted by the idea of adventurous lives in far-off places, but in the main, the likelihood is that they signed up and got aboard Birkenhead because of the promise of three square meals a day. Birkenhead headed south and to war. They were, going to, they were going to Africa, to South Africa, to fight there in the endless sequence of wars uh, that were there in, the, in that part of the 19th century. Um, the largest single group were the 66 men of the 74th Regiment uh, that would be the Highland Light Infantry in later years. They were commanded by a six-foot-three-inch Scotsman, uh, flight, uh, Lieutenant Colonel Alexander Seaton, uh, a great, uh, you know, a, a, a fantastic figure of a chap. Think, think Connery or something of that ilk. Uh, it, it's hard to know how many people were, were aboard, how many men were aboard the ship, but it's probably well over 600 went up the gangplanks. Uh, there were also, and this is crucial, women and children. It was not unusual at that time for officers in particular to take their, their whole families on campaign with them. Uh, Seaton made good use of the time. Uh, the men were, were brought out on deck, fairly limited space, but nonetheless he put them through their paces. Uh, he, he taught them all he could in, in, the, in, the, in, the, in the days and weeks what it was to be a soldier in Victoria's army. Uh, there were divisions, naturally, between the different groups. They were all small cohorts, and he tried to establish uh, something amounting to an esprit de corps. Um, by the 25th of February 1852, fully loaded with everything they needed, uh, food and water and provisions, they began the final leg of their journey to, uh, to Port Elizabeth. Uh, she was making eight or nine knots, steam-powered paddle steamer, uh, very efficient for the time by the standards of the day. Uh, and to, and to, make the, to make the fastest route possible to her destination, she was coasting. She was just three miles out from the coast, and which put her in the, into slightly unpredictable waters. Uh, because they were, sh in, they were shallower, they were closer in, and there was the potential of hazards. Um, but as, as far as possible, they were, they, were, they were taking their line from the available charts. Uh, there were lookouts fore and aft, there were officers on the bridge, sailors on watch. Uh, just before two o'clock in the morning of the 26th, that's the day in question, the 26th of February 1852, 
A sailor's voice broke the silence of the night. He was the, the leadsman. He was, he was swinging a lead on the end of a rope and, and checking the depth, and he shouted, 12 fathoms, all is well. So there was nothing to worry about. The, another uh, another uh, sailor shouted four bells, which is to say they were halfway through the night, uh, and everything looked uh, as it should be, and the Birkenhead at that moment ran full steam onto a, a hitherto unknown reef of rock, uh, they were in an area known as Danger Point, but the, the, there were rocks on the charts that whatever it was that Birkenhead hit had previously never been known about. It was just sheer bad luck. Uh, she'd hit so hard with her paddle wheel still turning full, full pelt that it drove, them, it drove them further onto the reef of rock, and the, a great rent was torn in the hull and sea poured into the space below decks, and the men, many of the men, uncounted numbers of the men, drowned where they were in their bunks, uh, just sleeping. So they, they, never even, they never even had the chance to do anything. Uh, the captain of the Birkenhead was Captain Salmond. He was thrown out of bed, made his way, he was an old Navy hand, he got up on deck as fast as he could and started assessing the damage. He shouting orders left and right. He knew what to do in the circumstances, and very quickly orders were dispatched to get the women and children up onto the deck. And that was achieved. All of the women and children were assembled. Uh, distress rockets had been fired out of force of habit, but there was no one for miles around. There was no help coming. L Lieutenant Colonel Seaton was quickly there too, in his night clothes, uh, but with his sword belted, belted on. It was, only, it was the only precaution he'd taken to come on deck. And then the, the, the wounded, the walking wounded, started to emerge, some of them terribly hurt, but there was, there was no help for them. There were men appearing half-dressed, naked. There was nothing they could do. They just had to muster on the deck as best they could. Salmon's crewmen needed help with the pumps because obviously the ship was sinking. Uh, and Seaton, the soldier, rounded up 60 of his men and gave them, put them at the captain's disposal. And then he called, of course, what they did was the, to, to lower the lifeboats. And the soldiers and the sailors joined together for this you know, crucial task, but they found to their horror that of the eight lifeboats that were, that were aboard Birkenhead, uh, only two could be released. The rest of them were sort of painted into their, or rusted into their positions. They had never been called upon, never been needed, never properly been tamed. In the end, three boats were lowered, uh, two eight-oared cutters and a gig. But it was, what they knew right away was that most people were going into the water. And the water off the coast of South Africa, then as now, was known to be thick with sharks, including the white pointers that we know as great whites. Seaton never actually used the words women and children first, uh, but he made it clear who would be taken up the first places in the available boats. And so the, the officers' families, the, the women, the wives, and the children of varying ages were put aboard the available boats. And you know it was, it was causing great distress. You know, wives and children were calling out for husbands and fathers, but there was nothing else for it. But no, nothing else that this had ever been done before, because previously, it, it, it's, a, it's extraordinary that it happened. Because previously, the call was something like self-keeper, save yourselves if you can, every man for himself. But this was going to be different. And the young soldiers and the young officers uh, of, the, of the 74th and other regiments, they, they sit that night in the, in the dark. And the chaos of that night, they set a new standard. Um, the, Seaton selected a young ensign 70, of the 74th, 19-year-old Alexander Cumming Russell, Ensign Russell, and he was, he was put into the, the, the main cutter with the women and children. Uh, 
once that was in the water, Seaton put himself at the end of the gangplank with his sword drawn in, in case anybody tried to, in case any of the soldiers broke ranks. But nobody moved. Everybody stayed in line. They stayed where their officers had told them to be. And they stood there. You imagine in the dark, you know, they're looking up at the Southern Cross and other stars in the sky as the women and children are rowed away into the darkness. And then what they did, what was done, what was always the case was that the, the army followed what's known as funeral order, which is youngest first. So the, the youngest of the, of, of the recruits were put into the available spaces in the cutters. Salmon then made a disastrous decision. He thought that he could get Birkenhead off the rocks by throwing her into reverse and, and using the, the, the wheels, the, the, the paddle wheels to, to, to pull her back into deep water. But when he did it, it tore another rip into the, into the hull of, of Birkenhead. Water poured into the engine room, it extinguished the boilers. There was now no power. They were into deeper water. Um, but the, so, so the, the next thing that was done was the horses. They had, they had, you know, they, they had cavalry as, there as well, and the horses were blindfolded, put into the water in the hopes that they would swim to shore, but they were instantly taken by sharks so that the men still aboard could see what was going to happen as, the, as they went into the water. It's like the, it's like the USS Indianapolis, you know, the scene in Jaws, you know, you know, where, he, where he describes what happened to the, to the people that went into the water. Birkenhead broke her back. Finally, she snapped. Uh, on the reef, uh, but the men still stayed where they had been put. And you have to remember that these were the greenest recruits imaginable. I mean, they were barely soldiers. They had done no active service. They had just been recruited and there they were, but they were taking orders from their officers. Uh, the ship's funnel snapped and, and fell down, causing chaos, killing many. Uh, they set about trying to free more of the lifeboats, but they couldn't. Captain Salmon had climbed up into the rigging, either to get clear and to try and stay out of the water for as long as possible, or to find a better place from which he could address the, the soldiers. And he told them to get into the water and make for the boats, make for the cutter. But uh, he said, save yourselves. If you can swim, just jump overboard and get to the boats. But Seaton, realising what that would mean if all the men started swimming towards these already filled boats, said, you will swamp the cutter. You will kill the women and children. I beg of you not to do this, and I beg of you to stay where you are. And no one broke ranks, not one of the soldiers, not one of the officers. Uh, the, the, the officers took up the call, and they shouted out to these men, hold the line, hold the line, hold the line, and so they did. And then, so the, the Birkenhead slipped below the, slipped below the surface completely. The men were in the water. The wives and children had to watch as their, you know, as their husbands went into the water, one man's voice rose above the tumult of the ships dying. God bless you all, he said. God bless you all. Captain Wright of the 91st Regiment, he survived to fight another day. And he, he reported, and I quote, the order and regularity that prevailed on board from the moment the ship struck till she totally disappeared, far exceeded anything that I thought could be affected by the best discipline. And it's the more to be wondered at, seeing that most of the soldiers were but a short time in the service. Every man did as he was directed, and there was not a cry or a murmur among them until the vessel made her final plunge. All received their orders and had them carried out as if the men were embarking instead of going to the bottom of the sea. There was only one difference, that I never saw an embarkation conducted with so little noise or confusion. The ship went down quickly. Soon there was hardly anything but the very the tops of the superstructure available. And the sharks came in. They, they circled for a while, but then they, they, you know, they, they gained confidence and they moved in. Uh, and it's, it's a, uh, this crushing irony that these young boys, 
that had, that had stepped aboard Birkenhead, stepped away from their old lives in hopes of being fed, became food for sharks. But nobody moved. Nobody made a move on the boats. But the women, in the, the wives in the boats, they were driven beyond endurance and they, they started demanding that the, the cutters be taken back towards the struggling men. And so, and so they did. The young, the young ensigns moved the boats back in and they were calling out to their husbands, but nobody would approach the boats. And then Ensign Russell, who's 19, he, he jumped. The, the family that was in his boat saw their, saw their husband and father. And Ensign Russell jumped into the water, helped the man take his place in the boat, struck out for shore and then was taken by a shark while others watched. And then in all, 430 men aboard the Birkenhead died. Captain Salmon was killed by a, one of the ship's masts falling on him. Lieutenant Colonel Seaton was, uh, was surrounded by his men, but he was, they were taken. They were all taken by sharks. However, the point of Birkenhead is that every single woman and child was saved. And some hours later, another ship in the vicinity, the Lioness, came across the lifeboats and the, and the women and the children told them what had happened and they proceeded and they pulled a few people out of the water, but in all respects, the, the, the crew, the soldiers and the sailors were all gone. And because of the circumstances of the middle of the 19th century, the, the news of what happened to Birkenhead didn't reach Britain until April. Uh, but it became legend. The King of Prussia, Frederick Wilhelm, uh, uh, later who became the, the German Emperor, uh, he was told of what had happened on Birkenhead and had an account of it posted in every barracks of his army telling the men that this was the standard, the almost unattainable standard that he expected from his men. And Seton and his men had changed naval protocol forever. The cry of women and children first is properly described as the Birkenhead drill. And this is their memorial. This is their memorial and their greatest monument. And half a century later, Kipling, Rudyard Kipling immortalised it in a poem called Soldier and Sailor II, which he dedicated to the Royal Marines. To take your chance in the thick of a rush with firing all about is nothing so bad when you've covered to hand and leave and the liking to shout, but to stand and be still to the Birkenhead drill is a damn tough bullet to chew. Now, most people have never heard, I would imagine, of the Birkenhead, and they won't know that women and children first is the Birkenhead drill. And it's impossible to say how accurate the accounts that we have of what happened that night actually are what actually played out on the 26th of February 1852. But, but, but history as much as anything else, or certainly to me, it, it's the stories that we tell ourselves about what we think happened, or, or it might even in some cases be what we hope happened in the past. History is partly narrative, and ultimately, if it's the matter at all, it becomes personal narrative. Rudyard Kipling also wrote, I keep six honest serving men. They taught me all I knew. Their names are what and why and when and how and where and who. And these are the questions. These are the questions that we should ask all of the time of our leaders and of everyone else in relation to what is happening around us and what's being inflicted upon us. What, why, when, how, where and who. In relation to history, I think the question of why is the hardest to answer. Why something happened? Because we weren't there and we cannot know why events unfolded, why events unfolded in the way that we did. And I think we have to consent or content ourselves in the main with answering the other five questions so that why remains elusive to the last. 
Historians hope to find the truth of the past, but truth is as elusive as why. What is true is that some of the stories that we tell ourselves, the kind of stories that I count as history, they take the trouble to remember and to retell, at least in part, uh, who we think we are as people and as a civilization. If not who we are, then who we might be if we try hard enough to put the needs of others above our own. And there are many stories that work that way and that break my heart. And they told generations of British people and people around the world, uh, they, they told people who the British were, or, which is just as important, who they thought they were and what they thought their ancestors had done. The Battle of Britain, the Birkenhead Drill, the, the Blitz, the Thin Red Line, the Charge of the Light Brigade, and on and on and on. On and on and on it goes. These are the kind of things that get remembered for hundreds and then for thousands of years. In Scotland, which is my homeland, um, much is made of Kalgakis, the warrior swordsman who, according to Tacitus at least, rallied the Caledonians. He brought together all the, all the clans, all the tribes of Scotland. Uh, according to Tacitus, he brought them together for a climactic battle against Agricola's Romans at a place called Mons Graupius, which is to say the Grampian Hills. And this happened sometime in AD 83. Um, and real or imagined, let's allow for the artistic license according to, to Tacitus. Uh, but the, the words that he either heard or put into the mouth of Calgacus are quite something. Whenever I consider the origin of this war and the necessities of our position, I have a sure confidence that this day and this union of ours will be the beginning of freedom to the whole of Britain. To all of us, slavery is a thing unknown. There are no lands beyond us. We are the last of the free, and even the sea is not safe, menaced as we are by a Roman fleet. To us who dwell on the uttermost confines of the earth and of freedom, this remote sanctuary of Britain's glory has up to this time been a defence. Now, however, the furthest limits of Britain are thrown open, but there are no tribes beyond us, nothing indeed but the waves and the rocks. Let us then, a fresh and unconquered people, never likely to abuse our freedom, show forthwith at the very first onset what heroes Caledonians has in reserve. How can you read that without the tears springing in your eyes? It's so good. It's so good. And how, how familiar is it in terms of inspiring the rhetoric that, that, that some, can, some of us continue to tell ourselves about what Britain is, or at least what Britain has meant? We've been hearing this for thousands of years then. We've been telling each other, those of us that, those of us that care so much about it, that it you know, brings a lump to the throat, that Britain is a special place. And it's a place where no one should accept enslavement. And it's a place that values freedom from totalitarianism above all else. So history then, some of history can be used, that can be exploited to stir the blood, to persuade people in times of doubt or in times of fear that they have an obligation to meet standards set by others who went before and by so doing to inspire generations as yet unborn. Stories from history at least suggest what might be possible what might be achieved if we seek to live up to an ideal, an ideal that may or may not have been realised, ever made real by the ancestors. I think, and I say this from the heart, that it's hard to express how important it is to give people the confidence to try and do that which might otherwise seem impossible. 
And there we have it, the C word that matters so much now. And it's confidence, <coughs> confidence without which people lack either the will or the wherewithal to keep going. Subject of my talk, the attack on our history and culture. Both are certainly under attack by those preaching the nihilistic narrative born of, among other contagions, postmodernism, an ideology that seeks to persuade us to disregard and to forget all that we have previously valued and understood about our nation and ourselves. It's a blatant attempt to erase the past, to forget the past, <coughs> and to find only shame in the memory of our predecessors. The removal of statues is obviously a highly visible aspect of this bid to establish a year zero. No one's safe, not even Thomas Jefferson. I watched, I watched online, I saw footage of an eight foot tall statue of Thomas Jefferson being removed from New York City Hall. A statue that had been gifted to the people of New York in 1834. And there, and here, and elsewhere, statues are toppling, subject to an agenda that makes no sense to me. As has been rehearsed elsewhere and by others smarter than me, the past, our past, is being viewed now and by many who should know better from the narrow perspective of the present. Through that highly subjective prism, judged in relation to 21st century morality, any and everyone from the past might be so judged and found wanting. This is a metastasizing cancer that will kill us all in spirit, if not in the flesh, unless we deal with it. Our defence against the worst of the attack, our cultural immune system, if you might say, could and should be confidence in who we are, who our ancestors were and what they achieved. But our confidence, collective and individual, is being undone. Its power as an immune system in the face of an uncertain future is being suppressed. Without the confidence drawn from knowing who we are and what we are about, we will be prone to all the opportunist infections spread by those who would make us ashamed of our past and our culture and the civilization that has been its product. We know this is wrong and disastrously so. We know that children raised in shame, children who are made to feel shame about themselves, about their parents, about their background, about those from whom they come, go on doomed to disastrous outcomes. We've known this for thousands of years. In Deuteronomy 23.16, the fathers shall not be put to death for the children, neither shall the children be put to death for the fathers. Every man shall be put to death for his own sin. I'm often introduced as a historian. God help me, but the truth is I'm not. Um, and not in the way that matters to real historians, let me tell you, because they write to me to say so. Uh, <laughs> TV likes to badge, it likes to badge people. It's called an Aston, the thing they put under your name, you know, to make it clear to the viewers what, who or what you are. Um, and, and, and in the days when the legacy channels used to give me the time of day from time to time, I was always cast in the role of talking about old places and old things. And it just made it just made life easier for everyone uh, if they if they called me a historian. I did go to uni. I went to Glasgow University in the mid 80s. I've got a degree in archaeology um, way back in the 1980s, though, and I've, I've never really given university a thought since. Uh, and having seen the way academia has gone, more so in America, I, I suppose at the moment, but but certainly the same. The same contagious infection is also here. Academia is tainted and corrupted 
in many ways by bad faith that has marched unchallenged through the rest of our institutions. Uh, increasingly, I, I, was never, I wasn't ever cut out to be an academic. I, I, didn't have the, I didn't have the ability, to, truth to tell. But in any event, when I look back at it, I'm glad that I just you know, turned my back on, on, on the ivory towers after I graduated with my degree and went away and got a job. Because that's worked out well for me, better for me. And I often tell myself that the most useful education I ever got was because I, I, I tried to make a go of it as an archaeologist, but I was, on a, I, was, I was excavating a bit of Roman road on Lurg Moor. There's a name to conjure with, Lurg Moor, uh, above Greenock, above the Clyde, in, in, a, in a, I think it was a November or a December, and it was brutal, just being another guy, and it was just snow and whatever. And I was about, I don't know, it was early 20s, and I thought, I'm going to be 40 one day. <laughs> And, uh, and I'm never going to be able to afford a house, and, um, and I'm going to be arthritic before I'm out of my 30s. And I, I walked away from archaeology, and I, I, I got the chance to retrain as a, as, a, as a cub reporter. I got the chance to be what they called in the old days an indenture. Um, do you know what an indenture is called? An indenture. It was a contract that people used to sign in the good old days, and two copies of it were written out on the same sheet of paper, two, two duplicate copies. And then it was torn in half, quite laboriously, so that there was a, there was a toothed edge. And it meant that you, you, you signed one and your boss signed the other. And if you ever had a dispute relating to your contract, the two could be brought together. And because of the teeth, they fitted together. And you could see, oh, it is the same contract. That was an indentured contract, which fascinated me. So I, I, was, given, I was given an indenture. Um, and I got, I, got the, I got a proper old-fashioned cub reporter's education. I, I did the day job most of the time, but uh, twice I was sent away to uh, college to, to, to study Scots law for journalists and newspaper practice. I went to night school to do shorthand and typing. And shorthand and typing, without a doubt, more than my degree, more than learning to drive, shorthand and typing changed my life for the better. I cannot, and I say to my kids, it's, it's the best thing you could have, learn shorthand and typing. It absolutely, uh, you know, set me on a path, which I'm so glad about. And my first editor, get to the point, I worked for the Dumfriesshire Newspapers Group, which was this little privately owned entity based in Annan and Lockerbie in Dumfries. The Annandale Herald was the local paper when Pan Am 103 came down. I was working in the Annandale Herald. Uh, in the aftermath of, of, one, of Pan Am 103, I attended the, the Lockerbie Inquiry and heard some of the oh, unbelievable testimony. But my, my editor, who was a very eccentric man called Bill Laidlaw, who, who told us every day that every word we wrote about cattle sales and the local sheriff court, he said they read this in the Kremlin every day. <laughs> he, 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 was, he was convinced that, that Russia was watching us. But on my, and they are. And he told me on my first day in the office, in the newsroom, he said, your job is to represent the reasonable man or woman. He said the reasonable man or woman is, is reasonably educated, reasonably interested in what's going on about them. They want to stay up to date. They want to be informed. And they want, their, they want newspaper reporters to ask reasonable questions, the sort of questions that they would ask if they had access to those people. And he, so... He, he, he said it's, he, I mean, he preached it as though it was a, a quasi-holy obligation and responsibility. He said, you have to represent the reasonable people. And that is how I see myself and how I have seen myself ever since. I'm not a historian. 
I'm not an academic of any sort. I have no wishes so to be. I've worked as an archaeologist. I've worked as a newspaper reporter. I was, the, I was the editor of the third website in Britain, BT.com. There was Tesco. There was the Royal Bank of Scotland. And the third website in Britain in the mid-90s was BT.com. And I was part of the team that, that built it. And I edited the, some of the content. But always I try and remind myself that the most important thing to be, certainly now, is to be a reasonable man and ask reasonable questions of people in power. I said, this, I said this earlier to some of the people I was talking to, several of whom I genuinely, with my hand on my heart, think are, are better equipped to stand up here and talk than I am. Um, but I, 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 I said a couple of times to people that I feel as if I've walked through an invisible door, a door I didn't know existed, into a parallel universe, where everything looks the same, but all of my relationships with, with more and more people have become fundamentally different. Friends and acquaintances that I've known for years, another one this week actually publicly distanced themselves from me. Um, he's someone, someone that I've known for a long, long time. Uh, but, but, but mercifully, into that void or into that vacuum have been pulled incredibly important relationships, new friendships with people uh, whose paths mine would not have crossed. And, and I genuinely think it's been a great blessing to have gone through this kind of sorting process. It's, it's almost been like doing some kind of, um, uh, you know, clearing out of, I don't know, I don't want to say clutter about living, breathing human beings, but, but maybe there was a, maybe there, uh, everything's been altered. And I, I've now, in a very short space of time, established relationships with, with new and genuinely fascinating and inspiring people, and I, and I wouldn't have met them previously. But the past, in short, the past 20 months have been incredibly disorientating. I feel as if the planks of everything I knew before, I'm 54, and I feel as if up until I was about 52, I was walking about on, a, on, a, on an identifiable surface. And then all at once, th those floorboards have just dropped out from underneath me. And I'm, I mean, I, I continue to be in a, in, a, in a sort of free fall. And I'm not sure where I'm going to end up. Uh, and bizarrely, part of that process, I found myself cast in the role of commentator, commentating on all manner of things, current affairs and the rest. And it's honestly, it's not a role I ever wanted. It's, it's certainly not a role I ever sought actively. But here I am and here we are. And all, all the time now, my, my wife, we, we, we look at each other across the breakfast table after the, after the kids have walked off to school. And, you know, she'll say something like, how on earth did this happen to you? us and and you know how indeed and we you know I shrug I shrug what can you say we just look at each other uncomprehending about this sequence of events that has that it's not just us obviously it's, it's everyone in the world in the last 20 months has been turned upside down so the, the long and short of what I've said so far is I tell myself for the sake of my own sanity as much as anything else that I must try and continue to be the reasonable man that Bill Laidlaw told me I was obliged to be on behalf of the readers of the Annandale Herald and the Annandale Observer and the Dumfries Courier. But all I want to do now is what I was paid to do then, which is to ask what I consider to be reasonable questions of the people in authority and to have those questions answered and honestly. And this is being made increasingly difficult in this current climate in which more and more we're encouraged to feel ashamed of ourselves, in part 
not only but also having the temerity, the unmitigated gall to challenge, even to ask questions of the powerful. Now, I've made clear from the outset that I'm not a historian, but I'm here tonight to talk about the ongoing attack on our national history, on our nation's story and culture. And what I am as well, I hope, as a reasonable man, is a lover of history and a lover of stories in general. And I started with the story of Birkenhead, and it's just one of the stories from history that stirs my blood. And I've loved history ever since I was a pupil at primary school. I'm state educated. I went to a primary school in Dumfries and then Dumfries Academy. And, and, uh, and, but but I, had, I had a fantastic history teacher in my secondary school called Ivor Waddle. There's a name to conjure with. And I look back now, I remember thinking about him as being, a, as being an older guy, but when I look back now, I think he must have been about 26. Um, but, I, I, but I came to him, by the, time I was, by the time I was in his classroom, I already had, I had, I had acquired, a, 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 I don't know, a nascent love of history, I suppose, because I had learned that my grandfathers, had both, my mum's dad, my dad's dad, had both fought in and survived the First World War. Um, and, that that, and that my family, that my dad's dad and my mum's dad were connected to world-changing events, the like of which had never been conceived of before, that struck a deep chord with me. And on the rare occasion, and it might only have been once actually, when I sat on grandpa's knee, that was my dad's dad. My mum's dad was wounded in Gallipoli. He was shot by friendly fire, aged 16, and invalided out. He was back home in Renfrew by the time he was 16. He'd lied about his age to join the Royal Marines. Uh, but when I sat on my dad's dad's knee, if I, and I, put, I can remember distinctly putting my finger behind one of his ears, and there was a raw, it, there was an edge it, it, under the skin. It was like, it was like touching the, the serrated edge of a, of a bread knife. I could feel it under the skin. And I didn't ask grandpa, but I asked my dad. I was about five. And, uh, and my dad said it was shrapnel from a shell that had exploded, you know, near enough to hurt grandpa, but obviously not to kill him. And the surgeons left it in. I don't know. They just, they just didn't take it out. And he was deaf as a post in that ear because the metal had gone straight through and it was still there across his ear canal. Uh, he also had a wound here on his right forearm. It was, a, it was a sort of circular puckered scar that he called his clock. It looked a little bit like you know, a circular face with the, with the, with the lines of the, where the numbers would be. And whatever had gone in there, it might have been a bullet, it might have been shrapnel, don't know. Nobody ever said. Um, it, something had cut the tendons on his hand and these two fingers were permanently trapped against his palm as if he was holding something there but he simply couldn't move them and so for a five-year-old boy this made grandpa especially fascinating because not only did he have a fragment of a bomb in his head his hand was the same as my mark one action man <laughs> it was shaped like that to go into the trigger guard of the wee lee enfield rifle that he came with so i i am i absorbed this about history uh, and and it was, it's always been there for me because when it, when it came to looking at the Great War, for example, at school, it wasn't for me something that happened to strangers long ago. It was family business. I thought, oh, yeah, that's the thing that hurt grandpa and hurt, and hurt my, my mum's dad was dead long before I was born. Now, the Great War has been described as a set of iron railings separating the world of before from everything that came after. And it's a perfect description because... Through the railings, we could still see the horse-drawn world of women in crinoline dresses and men in straw boaters, but there was no touching it. There was no going back. We could see it, but we could never get there because the First World War was a line drawn and forever. And at this time of year, I mean, I, honestly, I've said this before recently, 
Um, I, I am, I'm absolutely preoccupied with, with what, the, what the, I think the Great War, I, I believe that we're still suffering the wounds of the Great War and the second war that followed it. I think that we think that we're beyond it because the last of the veterans is dead is, is completely wrong. I think we are, I, I, so much of what's going on in Europe and in the world is the, is the, it's like a coal, it's like a fire in a coal mine that we think has been extinguished, but it's still smouldering under the surface. It's still there. And every, every, uh, I think about the promises we make, or we're supposed to be making every Armistice Day to remember the sacrifices of the ancestors. And I find it particularly opposite to think about the poetry of Humbert Wolfe, Requiem for a Soldier, and I quote, Down some cold field in a world outspoken, the young men are walking together, slim and tall. And though they laugh to one another, silence is not broken. There is no sound, however clearly they call. They're speaking together of what they loved in vain here, but the air is too thin to carry the things they say. They were young and golden, but they came on pain here, and their youth is age now, their gold is grey. Yet their hearts are not changed, and they cry to one another. What have they done with the lives we laid aside? Are they young with our youth, gold with our gold, my brother? Do they smile in the face of death because we died? Down some cold field in a world uncharted, the young seek each other with questioning eyes. They question each other, the young, the golden-hearted, of the world that they were robbed of in their quiet paradise. I think about those lives laid aside more and more with every passing year. And given that we promise the dead that we will defend the freedoms they died for, I think about them with renewed poignancy now, right now. What have we, I ask myself, done with the lives they laid aside? And more recently, I have wondered if we are being robbed again of our world, of our quiet paradise. Are we defending the lives and the freedom that they bled and died for? Are we defending the world they were robbed of? A world of proud history, of culture, of civilization? Or are we standing mutely by while it's taken apart piece by piece by ideologues that want to see it gone for good and replaced by something else, something else that remains out of sight for now, uncertain and unknown? Sometimes I wonder if too many of us have grown accustomed to so much that we've forgotten what enough feels like. And with this mindset, nothing is ever enough. Now, there are more than 36,000 memorials to the Great War, at least there's a great census of them done about I don't know, 15 years ago now. Um, and they add up to the greatest public art movement in British history. And almost without exception, they were commissioned and paid for not by government or by local authorities, but by the people who had lost sons and husbands and fathers. Uh, they, they, they had been denied graves because the, the dead were left behind British Army policy was to, was to leave the dead where they fell. And in those far off days, France was out of reach, Belgium was out of reach, Passchendaele, they weren't going there. And so because the dead had been left behind, millions of people had nowhere to go. And the dead matter and graves matter and the living need places where the dead can be honoured and remembered. First to our ancestors who lie in barrows or under nameless cairns on heathery hills or where the seal swim crashes the island narrows or in Jacobean tomb where scrolls and skulls carry off death with an elegant inscription, the Latin phrasing that beguiles and dulls the bitter regret at the loved body's corruption or those who merely share the prayer that is muttered for many sunk together in war's eruption 
To all clay-bound or chalk-bound, stiff or scattered, we leave the values of their periods, the things that seemed to them, the things that mattered. That's um, W. H. Auden and Louis McNeese in Letters from Iceland. And I think about those words too, the values of their periods, the things that seemed to them, the things that mattered. The things that matter to them, like freedom worth dying for, ought to matter to us. So in those towns and villages all across the land, funds were raised and artists were consulted and commissioned. Uh, and it was testament, all of it, to the scale of what had happened to so many. And they looked down, do you know if, it, do you know if, the, if the war dead, if the British and Imperial dead of the First World War were to mark uh, four abreast down White Hall past the Cenotaph, it would take them two and a half days to get past. And they looked down from their plinths, those sentinels made of bronze and stone, and they've stayed in place for a hundred years while the world has moved beneath and around them. And as I've already mentioned, we've become, as many others around the world, a nation that pulls down statues. And I've wondered how long it will be before they come for the war memorials, those watchmen from an older world, from the foreign country of the past, where, as L.P. Hartley said, they did things differently. It seems to me that what we're seeing, what's been happening for years now, is the rise of a mass movement of sorts. I think the attack on our history and culture is part of that rise. Eric Hoffer was a stevedore on the, deck, uh, on the docks in San Francisco in the 40s, but he was a genius. And he was a great philosopher and he thought about the world and he wrote books to try and explain how he thought the world worked and what people were all about. And probably the greatest, certainly the one I've read most, is his first. It's called The True Believer, about the nature of mass movements. And I quote, At its inception, a mass movement seems to champion the present against the past. It sees in the established institutions and privileges an encroachment of a senile, vile past on a virginal present. But to pry loose the stranglehold of the past, there is a need for utmost unity and unlimited self-sacrifice. This means that the people called upon to attack the past in order to liberate the present must be willing to give up enthusiastically any chance of ever tasting or inheriting the present. Hence the inevitable shift in emphasis once the movement starts rolling. The present, the original objective, is shoved off stage and its place taken by posterity the future. More still, the present is driven back as if it were an unclean thing and lumped with the detested past. To lose one's life is but to lose the present, and clearly to lose a defiled and worthless present is not to lose too much. I think we're now in the grip of a mass movement, determined, among other things, to discredit the past and the present, so that once again, as has been attempted before in many places, all, fo all focus and hopes must become about reaching or building utopia, that perfect place of the imagination in the future, that place that does not and never can exist, or at least that has never been made to exist so far under the hands of men and women. Now, I've already mentioned the C word, confidence and how much it matters to the maintenance of a civilization. Kenneth Clark, not the politician, the art historian, was the presenter of a television series in the 1970s, one of those masterworks that the BBC made then. It was called Civilization, and he wrote a book, fantastic, easy to read book of the same name, uh, to accompany the series. And he wrote about how more than anything else, meaningful civilization requires confidence which is to say confidence in the society in which we live, and belief in everything around us, belief in the philosophy of the society, belief in the laws, 
uh, and confidence in our own mental powers as functioning individuals. And he, he, he described how all, all civilizations in the past, good or ill, have had that, a weight of energy. And people think civilization is this, you know, grand buildings uh, and fine art and, and good conversation and, and, and elegant sensibilities. But these are just the products of civilization. They're not what makes civilization civilization. And you can have all of that in a, in a society, in, in Rome, in Greece. You can have all of that and yet society can still fail. And our history and our culture are under attack. And there can be no doubt about that. We're being bullied into accepting that our history is a place of shame we're the only of forgetting. That here was the cradle and crucible of the Industrial Revolution that changed the world for the better and lifted millions or billions of people out of poverty is now apparently something we should be ashamed of. Industrial Revolution was founded on tapping coal and then oil. And so instead of being eternally proud of all that was made possible by that white heat, or to mourn only that we set the world on course for climate catastrophe, that we came to understand that chattel slavery was an immortal wrong and so got rid of it means nothing. That we exploited slavery, as had every civilization before us from Babylon onwards, may never be forgiven. In spite of the wisdom of Deuteronomy, we, the children of a civilization tainted by slavery, are forever damned by the sins of our fathers. Even to be born with white skin is original sin now, a sin for which there's no redemption and no forgiveness. We're under attack, our history and our culture. But what bears noting is that we're doing all of this to ourselves. It's not an attack by barbarians at the gates, but corrosion from within. We've lost confidence in ourselves. We've lost all of our confidence. The modern Greek poet C.P. Cavafy wrote Waiting for the Barbarians about city dwellers who have heard an enemy is massing somewhere beyond the walls. What are we waiting for, assembled in the forum? The barbarians are due here today. Why isn't anything going on in the Senate? Why are the senators sitting there without legislating? Because the barbarians are coming today. What's the point of senators making laws now? Once the barbarians are here, they'll do the legislating. Why did the emperor get up so early? And why is he sitting enthroned at the city's main gate in state wearing the crown? And so it goes on. There's this litany of hopelessness, you know, where people are bored and they're exhausted and nothing that they've got used to, nothing, none of the things that they've always done seem worth doing anymore. And then word comes that the barbarians have gone, they've buggered off, they've not come to the city. And hearing this, the citizens are dismayed. Now what's going to happen to us without barbarians? Those people were a kind of solution. <laughs> It seems to me that too many of us are citizens like those Cavafy imagined. We've known nothing but unprecedented peace for more than 70 years. During that time, we've been hypnotised by our good luck into thinking civilizations like ours are in the natural order of things, that a place like Britain just happens. Of course, history tells us, or certainly should, that quite the opposite is true. Look at the civilizations of the past, or look around at the rest of the world and see what the natural order gets you. There are maybe 30 or 40 countries on the face of the earth where you've got even half a chance of living a life such as been possible here. A life of tolerance of faith, tolerance of difference, tolerance of sexuality, a life of peace and equality before the law, of education for all. The rest of the world is run by gangsters and thugs. The rest of the world is a mess. And that we have allowed ourselves to grow so complacent that we've allowed ourselves to take for granted this marvel handy gifted to us by our ancestors is horrifying to me. Run the old place down if you wish, or listen to others doing it for you. 
of whom the mainstream media is full now, and ask yourself, compared to where and compared to what, our history is under attack by bad actors, those that would see an end to what we have had. It's not just history that's the target, even the family is threatened now. In Scotland, my homeland, as I've mentioned, the government of the SNP seems constantly preoccupied with finding ways to come between parents and children. Most infamous of their efforts was the named persons bill that would have inserted a state-sponsored figure, a stranger, into the life of every child, someone empowered to talk to the child alone, to gather information without need of parental consent. Mercifully, the bill was struck down by the highest court in the land, but it's never gone away. And it's out there, it's out there. It could come back at any time. More recently, the same government ruled that a child as young as four could choose at school to identify as the opposite sex, even to answer to a different name and wear different clothes, and all of that without the parents ever knowing. No need to tell mum and dad. This can be our little secret. Now, I've already referenced Eric Hoffer and the true believer. And Hoffer also describes how almost all mass movements have, in their early stages at least, a hostile attitude towards the family. And this is done by undermining the authority of parents, by making divorce easy, and by taking over responsibility for feeding, educating, and entertaining the children. Hoffer even points out that Christianity showed a certain early hostility toward the family, with Jesus himself saying, For I am come to set a man at variance against his father, and the daughter against her mother. He that loveth father or mother more than me is not worthy of me, and he that loveth son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. All of the warning signs of all of that I've been saying are here in the present. It all boils down for me to exhaustion, to taking the present for granted, to treating that present with contempt, and to loss of confidence in all that we have had. We are under attack, but the attack comes from within, and the solution must come from within as well. It will begin with recognition that here in Britain has been for some little while at least one of the best places in the world in which to live and to raise a family. For too long, too many of us, we who are the grown-ups and who should be taking on the responsibility of maintaining the old place, have been acting like children, spoiled and ungrateful children. It's time for us to grow up and to show that we deserve our inheritance. I've said it before and I'll say it again that the time is now to realise and to understand that we here in these islands are as lucky and blessed, if not luckier and more blessed, than anyone else on earth. And I'll leave it there. Thanks very much. Terribly, I'm, I have to say I'm very humbled by that. Very moved, so thank you very much. Thank you. What a wonderful uh, speech, Neil. Okay. Um, you talk about the mass movement. Is it possibly a very vocal minority movement? And the mass of us aren't struggling out of Yeah, well, I think, I think to some extent that, that, that that's also, I think, maybe a characteristic of, of mass movements. I, I, I think that the... There's hope in your question in that I think, yes, I think it is a vocal minority, but, but a vocal minority can have a, can have a great effect. And, and, I, and I think that as is demonstrable, you know, the carry, 
maybe maybe even unwillingly, but uh, but but uh, and uncomprehendingly, or, or, or sleepwalking, or whatever you want to say, they carry a lot of people with them, who, who just don't want to, you know, who just don't want to put their heads up. But but likewise, I think the solution, you know, can be made real by a by a tiny vocal minority of people, if that minority of people would just bother to get vocal. You know, I think I think mass movements are are led by something small and vocal, and you know, according according to Eric Hoffer. It's such a wonderful book. Um, you know, he, he makes such a lot of very straightforward sense. You know, he says that mass movements appeal to people who um, who want to shrug off like a like an old skin their own their own personality because they've come to for their own reasons they've come to detest the present and themselves, and that a mass movement can offer can seem to offer the possibility to shrug off that skin and to jump into and be absorbed by a collective that knows better and that, that will make all the decisions for you. You know, you know Hitler said that it was easier to, to, uh, uh, to convert communists to Nazism and the leaders of the communist movements in Nazi Germany at the time said it was much easier to, 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 to switch Nazis into being communists than it was to get anybody from within the middling field motivated in either way. You know, it just, you know, because all mass movements are alike. And to some extent, some, some people just want to shrug off their old personality and, and take on something new. And we, I, I was talking to some, we were talking before, before we came in here, and there's a tendency for a lot of people, if their own small, if their own normal life becomes too much for them and they can't, you know, they can't be bothered to straighten out their own business, it's very tempting to go and change the world. You know, it's just easier, but I, I, I want, I've got... My privilege here. I just want to ask my own question, really, uh, before gentleman here comes in. Um, you know, you you have been doing monologues on GB News, um, which have struck such a chord. And I just wondered, have you been surprised by this response? Yeah. Oh, uh, complete. You know that the the, the genesis of that. It, I've made this, that, that has become something that I kind of now have to do. I've made, I've made a rod for my back, in a way. Because, because I knew that, or I suspected that, that any audience seeing me suddenly appear, you know, the guy off coast, suddenly cast or recast in that role that I had to take on, I thought I should explain myself. And, and so I, I embarked upon a, you know, a sort of eight, seven or eight minute explanation of how on earth people were looking at the coast guy you know, talking about current affairs and pontificating about everything under the sun. And then, and so having done one, the producer said, you know, why don't you just start every show by just, you know, laying out a few thoughts about what you think about the week. And, and well, the rest is, is what has begun uh, to happen. And no, one's as, no one is anywhere near as surprised as me uh, at how much attention these, um, these seven, eight, nine minute passages gain on... Uh, someone, someone in, within GB News actually said GB News is a is a media is a media uh, platform with a television channel attached to it, and I think that's very that's that's I've never forgotten that from the day she said it, because the, the number of viewers that see me on a, on a Saturday night I think are you know could be could be could be this <laughs> it's, it's just that small, but then it has this ability to go out into the 
into the into the platform, and you know sometimes I get a million views on Twitter or or, or half a million views on, on YouTube, and I am stunned by it. But as I said tonight, I think I'm, I think it's only because I'm, I am, to the best of my abilities, trying to be the reasonable person. And I, and I think because I'm saying the things that I'm saying, and they're not they're not spectacularly clever or original or, or anything like that. I'm just saying things that, as it turns out, I think millions of people want to hear said. Some simple, reasonable things about about the state. I mean, I'm not you know, it's not philosophy. I'm not I'm not saying anything that millions of people aren't thinking. But I get great comfort from that. As I, as I've said in a couple of the monologues, I, I love I love knowing that I'm. Because people write to me all the time. I get these amazing letters that come to the guy with the hair off the telly, or, or he lives somewhere near Stirling Castle, or sometimes it's just a wee sketch of me, and the, and the postman manages to deliver them. And while the envelopes are funny, the contents of the letters are often heartbreaking, and, it, and it's from people over and over again saying, I thought it was just me. I thought I was mad. I thought I was the only person that wasn't getting it. But when I hear you speak, it gives me the confidence to think, no. I think that as well. And so, you know, that was supposed to be the core of what I was saying tonight about just being, just representing the reasonable people. And there are millions of reasonable people and they're not getting a voice. The gentleman here has been waiting patiently. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I do, but I also think it's it's easy for somebody like me to say that because obviously I've got a, you know, I've got a microphone right now, and every Saturday night I get one, and and then it goes out on on you know Twitter and, and all the rest of it, and it I can, it is difficult if you if you don't have that if you don't have that then how 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 does a person working you know on the tills at Tesco or or working as a carer in a care home. You know, and just trying to secure a, a, an income to support their family and get through the day. What are, what are they? What are they realistically supposed to do to to raise their voices? But so it's a hard. I think the answer to your question is yes. But I think it's difficult and under, very difficult for that silent majority to find a voice. But I do in some of the letters. A lot of the letters. I'm, I'm cheered and encouraged by how many say that they're gathering together in small groups. It's funny. It's like you know. It's like hearing about little sects forming in. You know, in 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 in, in Judea, two thousand years ago, you know, people are coming together in tens and twenties and sometimes hundreds, out in the open in parks. You know, they describe it to me, or or they or they gather wherever they can gather, and they don't do anything particularly. They just take comfort in in having conversations within that larger group in ones and twos, and they reassure themselves that they're they're still not mad, uh, that, that that there are that there are other people within their communities that, that think the same way. And I think that kind of step is, is important. I, th I think it's that regaining of confidence for the people of the vast majority that's, that's to be there simply in knowing that they are not mad and that they are not alone. And then, you know, and then inevitably, if and when the opportunity presents itself to do something about it via the, via the ballot box, then, you know, people must have the, have the confidence to know that yeah, there's millions of people that think like them, and they're not cranks, and they're not insane 
by, by, by seeking to conserve and to maintain you know, that which they have loved? Yeah, there's some, someone itch behind you. <laughs> Thanks, Roland. Thank you. Hello. Do you think there's a potential, as I say, long march through our institutions, and I would say, academia, police, judiciary, civil servants, all our institutions? I do think it's been deliberate. I do think it's been going on for, I, I honestly don't know how long, generations maybe. But again, I think it, it's, not, it's not a majority. It's a, it's a it, well, not maybe vocal, but a motivated minority. And I, th and I think it ha there has been what you just described as a march through institutions. I think that has, I don't know how, I don't know if it's how coordinated it's actually been, but I think it has undeniably, it has undeniably happened. And and like you, I mean, I could hear your voice cracking as you were speaking because, you know, you grew up in the Thames. I grew up in mostly in the southwest of Scotland with a dad that was obsessed with, you know, going up into the Highlands and, and you know, and, and, you know the, the landscape. And, and I grew up absolutely imbued with love of land. It, landscape for me, really, it, it started with and love, of, and love of history. And I've tried to express it. You know, I've written, you know, a couple of years ago, I wrote the story of the British Isles in 100 places. And I was simply writing about places of all the thousands of places that I've had the opportunity to visit and which I love. There were a hundred that were just like when I shut my eyes in the dark, it was like they were the, the lights that stayed on behind my eyelids. And I, and I just had to sort of string them together like beads on a string. And it all came from love. And I, and I do, I absolutely love Britain and, I'm not, and I've never been ashamed to say it. And it's not, in a, it's not in a triumphalist way. It's not in a saying better. I do sometimes say I think it's you know, best place in the world, but it's, it's just that I think that Britain is fantastic. Yeah, absolutely. It's, I think, and I think, and, and people shouldn't, shouldn't, be, shouldn't be afraid to say that. Absolutely. That's a great point, but we have to get some other people in. Sorry. Also, this gentleman came down from Stirling today and he's going to go back tonight. So, uh, 
we did we did offer him a hotel. We offered him a hotel. Uh, but we so we had two. There's a gentleman here, and then there was one very long arm at the back there. So this 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 one here, gentleman here. Thank you. Oh, Ron Connor. Thank you very much for the presentation. It seems to me that education is clearly for key so many things. And we here probably have very little control of the education of our children, of our teenagers, and even of our academics who go on to higher education universities and teach our children. Which is a problem. We've got a big barrier there, and it seems. I wonder how we overcome that. How we roll back not just recent history of 100 years, but thousands of years of history which has built our nation. I mean, I think of documents like the Declaration of Growth, which you all know very well. Mm -hmm. Who's ever heard of it? And it's got great history in it. And mm. great I think I think they would they would need to be um, uh, you know um, they would need to be a, a motivated government that was prepared to root out and winnow out uh, uh, the the characters and the and the groups that have been pushing that nihilistic negative agenda and re and replacing them at least in part with people who are prepared to you, you know say, offer up the other side of the story. You know, it's a one, it's a one, it's a monoculture at, at the moment within the institutions and, and within within education. I mean, I'm sure there are still. I mean, I, I only really have ever experienced the state schools. There are. We, we have lovely teachers at my kids' primary school, and and there are. You know, there are good teachers that I've encountered. I've encountered in the in the high school. Stirling High School, right? It's been there since the 12th century. Can you believe it? Been in different locations, but. You know, to talk about a heritage going back, you know, and it's always been available to the to the ordinary folk of Stirling, but from the 1100s, it's, it's remarkable to me. Um, but I think there just has to be a, a rebalancing. It's, it, there is a monoculture at the moment that's pushing one line, pushing one agenda. But there are good teachers there, and maybe they maybe they feel oppressed or suppressed and not able to educate in the way that they in the way that they want to. But it's what you identify. I think I don't know. I I share your belief that that is what has happened. You know that, that we've ended up with an education system that is pushing an ideology that, that I, for one, don't approve of and don't agree with. But you know, but you just need you just need other you need other voices. You need other you need other people to say other things. You don't just want to replace one monoculture with another monoculture that just you know that just that just says one thing. You you need, you need to have it all. You know, I mean, I'm part of you know GB News, as you know, and honestly, I mean, hand on heart, I mean, I, I hear other people on screen saying things within the context of GB News that make me shout at the screen. Like, no! But, and then I, but I caution myself by thinking, well, that's probably, that's probably the way that ought to be, rather than it just being another you know, one-way street. Um, so I think we, we, it's a rebalancing that's required rather than a wholesale replacement of one thing with another thing. But, but the problem, the problem is absolutely, is the problem is absolutely there. And why there isn't space for just people open-heartedly expressing love for, you know, thou you know the, the thousands of years of history. I started off my book, the story of the British Isles in 100 places, with human footprints at Haysborough in Norfolk that are a million years old. And when they were revealed, they weren't fossils, they weren't solid, they were soft prints in sediment that had been sealed beneath other sediment for a million years. Homo antecessor, pioneer, 
man and woman who'd come into the peninsula of northwestern Europe a million years ago, ice ages ago. And that's here, you know, that, and that, that, the depth of history in our little archipelago breaks my heart. I mean, I, 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 just, I, I just feel as if we're, you know, we're, we're, we're holding such a treasure. We have such a treasure here and it's, and, and it's history that tells us the nature of that treasure. And some of the, some of the stories are terrible. And there's black stuff that went on and dark stuff and, and ugly stuff that went on and cruel things that happened. But in that way that when you fall in love with somebody properly, you know, you, the, the, the shades, the light and dark of that person's personality is what makes them the person that you absolutely fall in love with. It's because they're not perfect. If you, get, you know, if you have the opportunity to get to know somebody properly, you'll know that that's true. And it's like that. I, I feel that this, this temptation or this determination that there has been to undo and to erase and to expunge the history of and to take characters out that they tell us things about ourselves. You know, we got here because of footsteps that were taken and mistakes that were made. I wear a suit of armour made only of my mistakes. You know. You know, we need, to, we need to see these people, we need to see these characters, hear these stories, learn from it and, and, you know, and appreciate that it's all part of that texture. And you, you, you said that thing about the, the mainstream media. I think the mainstream media is greatly, greatly at fault and has been for God, I don't know how long. I can't look at newspapers now and I, and I don't. And I, I, consume, I consume whatever current affairs elsewhere. You can't see P. Cavafy. You know, um, you cannot hope to bribe or twist, thank God, the British journalist, but seeing what that man will do unbribed, there's no occasion to. <laughs> you know, it, it's, you know it's, it's, it's not a new thing that the, that the media, the mainstream media, you know, has a tendency to follow a line to push an agenda. They've always, been, they've always done that and they always will, but, but, but yes, absolutely, to get, that's a long rambling answer, but the, something has to be done to level out. There's one big heavy bottom on one side of the seesaw at the moment, and there needs to be another couple of bottoms at the other end. To I think uh, we have. Sorry, we've actually got the the, gen, the gen, yeah the gentleman down here. We, we're going to have to call it tonight. I'm afraid after that. Yes, you sir. Yeah. I'm just going on uh, the lady I would absolutely. I, I, I am. I've always been. I've always been politically homeless. I've never been a member of a political party. I've always been deeply cynical about polit politics, politically agnostic. However, you want to express it, I've had no truck with any of them. I, 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 you know, and, and don't get me started on the SNP. And <laughs> can't, can't, can't believe I can't. I can't believe I invoke that. I can't believe I invoke that spirit. But no, so I, 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 I agree. I absolutely, I share your desperation in the face of that. But I, when I'm in the, in the 30 seconds every other day where I feel slightly optimistic, um, I, 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 I do, I do inter entertain the possibility that the political landscape is, you know, is shifting uh, and that there, that there are other voices and that if, if some of those voices, rather than being lone reeds in, in the wilderness, you know, 
you know, could set aside some things and come and come together because there's a, you know, there is a greater battle to be won. You know, the 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 the, the government and the opposition at the moment, as far as I'm concerned, are just dead flesh. Just I would just I would just slough off all of it and start again. And I hope I would like I would like I would like to think I would like. Voices. There are voices. There are voices out there, and they say things, some things that, I, that chime with my thoughts. Uh, and, and, I, and as I say, when I'm when I'm feeling optimistic, uh, and I think, given the gravity of the situation in which we find ourselves, if if some of those smaller entities could speak to one another meaningfully uh, and, and, and come together so as to offer, you know, the voters a, a realistic alternative to the. Oh, the stultifying, stagnant boredom of the two-party state that we've got at the moment. There's a happy note to end on. Uh, well, look, I just want to thank you, Neil, so wholeheartedly for that. I think I found it quite moving, actually, and um, so vivid. Uh, thank you so much on behalf of us all. Um, I'd also just like to, just a couple of things. Uh, first of all, thank you for making the effort to come out tonight. Um, I think you talked about how we should associate and how we should get together. And this is one such occasion, I think. Um, and uh, all the better for it. Uh, Neil mentioned in his talk about Kenneth Clark's civilization, which I think had a lot of... Uh, uh, quite a, an effect on most of us. Uh, next year, uh, the New Culture Forum is going to be producing a six-part series called The West. Um, <laughs> the whole point of it is to talk about the glories and the wonders of the West and our achievements. One thing's for sure, you can make sure the BBC are not going to make it. <laughs> But, uh, but these days, we have, uh, we have good old YouTube, but it will be up to our usual standard. It's going to be presented by Mark Sidwell, and there will be an awful lot of, we hope, very distinguished people in it. So that's something to look forward to. Um, I also, before I sign off with Neil, would like to thank uh, the New Culture Forum team who put together events like this and indeed do the whole channel. Um, Rafe Hadelman Koo. Uh, you might know from the TV. Um, also, Lynn Evans, um, Ollie Hewitson, our cameraman at the back, our producer there, Clive Watson, and Rollo Pignol, who helps out on a regular basis. Um, these are the people who put us together, really, and put us on screen and all the rest of it. And so I'd very much like to thank you uh, for all that you do. So I'm sure that Neil, before he gets on his train, oh, actually, we've got to have some dinner. But after that, but I'm sure that he might answer some questions when, uh, if you quickly get hold of him when we finish. Thank you once again. Thank you very much.
Hello, if you're enjoying the New Culture Forum channel and you believe in our mission, may I invite you to join our membership scheme at the link below or on our website, newcultureforum.org.uk. Our work is more important now than ever and we have great plans ahead for the future, but we can't do it without your support. From as little as £3 per month, you can help ensure that we continue on our mission. As a member, you'll receive a range of benefits, including access to exclusive content, invitations to our private events, including here at our studios, free copies of our books, and much, much more, including, of course, our famous NCF mug. If you aren't able to become a member, then please help us by clicking this button and subscribing to our channel. It's completely free. Just remember to also click the bell icon so that you can get notifications when we post new videos. Thank you. Thank you.